Thank you, Hilary, and good evening, everyone. Be honest with me now. How many of us muttered, thanks be to God, through gritted teeth at the end of Hillary's reading? Thanks be to God for politicians and taxes. <laughs> you must be joking. Perhaps Paul didn't know what we know, that modern opinion polls would show that of all professional groups, politicians are the least trusted. Up there are the doctors and nurses, like me, and teachers, and down there are all the creeping things and politicians. Maybe Paul had never anticipated the scandal exposed by the Panama Papers, which seemed to suggest that the rich and powerful are engaging in tax evasion on an industrial scale. Did Paul not realise that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely? Did Paul not realise those things or is it just that things were completely different in his day? Completely different in the Rome that Paul was writing to the Christians who uh, there Well, is it it the case in ancient Rome that politicians came out at the top rather than the bottom of the opinion polls? And did the populace just love paying their taxes? Well, actually, no. Paul knew perfectly well that the Roman authorities were notoriously corrupt and their taxes were deeply unpopular Around this very time that he was writing to the Roman Christians, there was seething and uh, rebellions sort of seething all the time, including uh, the Jewish population, which, uh, even though they were actually treated relatively kindly by the Roman authorities, just hated the Roman rule so much that they would object to anything and everything. So Paul knew that the Roman authorities were corrupt and unpopular, Paul also held to the hugely provocative view that Jesus is Lord with the clear implication and Caesar isn't Lord. And Paul has already warned his readers at the beginning of this section, Romans, at the beginning of chapter 12, already warned his readers not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. So all this might be leading towards giving permission not to bother about the ruling powers and not to bother about paying taxes. But despite all of this, the fact that Paul was living in and writing to Christians living in a culture that was at least as unpopular as uh, as our own in terms of its leaders, despite all of this, Paul urges submission to the civil authorities and not rebellion against them. The gospel may well and is hostile to tyranny, but is also hostile to anarchy. So how and why then does Paul advocate submission to civil authorities and paying up with your taxes? What's going on here? 
Let's look, uh, try and unpack our passage this evening. If I can remind you, it's Romans chapter 13, the verse 7 verses, page 1140 in the Church Bibles. Please do happen to have it open in front of you. And let's see if we can unpack this passage under three headings. Firstly, we'll, in, we'll have a look at the authority that the civil authorities have. Secondly we'll, look, secondly, we'll look at their purpose. What are they for? What are they supposed to do? What do they do? And thirdly, we'll ask what limitations there might be to their authority and to their functions. So the civil authorities, their, their authority, their purpose, and their limitations. Firstly, then, their authority. Now, it's perfectly clear from verse 1 that the authority that the ruling powers have comes from God. They may not acknowledge it. They may not acknowledge God. They may be deeply imperfect. And I really want that theme to run all the way through my message to you this evening, my teaching this evening. I know, Paul knows, that the ruling authorities are deeply imperfect. They do many wrong things and sometimes terrible things. But their existence is a part of God's good and wise ordering of this world. In verse 1, Paul insists, there is no authority except that which God has established. And in case we've missed it first time around, he repeats himself. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's clear, isn't it? And Paul is picking up, I think, on a rich vein of Old Testament teaching here. The book of Daniel insists that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth. And that's coming from a man, Daniel, who is deeply embedded in a foreign culture, working for alien pagan rulers. His own people, the Jewish people, having no homeland left of their own because they were in exile. And yet he's saying, my God, our God, rules over all these other authorities. And then in Proverbs chapter 8, God's wisdom has a voice. God's wisdom speaks and says, By me kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. By me, God's wisdom, princes govern and all nobles who rule on earth. And there's much more in the Old Testament to say God, our God, the true and living God, is sovereign over all nations and all rulers and all parliaments. All summed up in that wonderful reply of Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Pilate tries to say to Jesus, do you not realise I have the power to either kill you or release you? And Jesus' reply, absolutely priceless. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given you to you from above. And that to a Roman governor who was about to execute him. No power except what God has given. I think this is revolutionary teaching. Um, to understand, just to begin to grasp the sovereignty of God over all rulers and all nations. Your God, my God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
rules. Jesus himself is King of kings and Lord of lords. The early Christian writer Tertullian put it like this in speaking to uh, his pagan uh, neighbours. Caesar, he said, is more ours than yours because our God appointed him. There's another way in which our passage this evening uh, demonstrates or illustrates um, how it is or why it is or that it is that these rulers, whoever they may be, whether they acknowledge God or not, are God's servants. They're called God's servants, I think, three times in this passage. And scholars uh, tell me that the kind of language that Paul is using when he calls these rulers God's servants is a very religious language. It's the language that would be translated into words like deacons and ministers and even priests. It's the kind of language that's used in, uh, in the Old Testament for the priesthood and in the New Testament for Christian ministers. Once again, showing how God is at work in and through and over these world leaders. And if we can take one thing away from this point about the authority of the ruling, of the ruling powers, it maybe it's this, that godly ministry can be exercised not only in the church on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, not only in the home group on a weekday evening, but also in the houses of parliament, as Richard has prayed, in the council chambers of local government, and in the, and in the magistrates' court. There God can and often is at work, because all of these other powers have a merely delegated authority. Absolute authority belongs to God and God alone. So that's some thoughts then from this passage about the authority of the ruling powers. Now secondly, their purpose. What do they do? Well, Paul says they do two things. He summarises under two headings, both in verse 4. The ruling authorities act on God's behalf to punish wrongdoers. They act on God's behalf to punish wrongdoers. Now, I'll just pause on this point and just um, um, do something with this thought. about How does this, this idea of punishing wrongdoers square with the clear biblical instruction to love our neighbours? Or with Paul's instruction in chapter 12 and verse 19 and following, not to seek revenge, but to overcome evil with good. How can then Paul talk in the very next, in his very next breath about punishment of evil? Well, let me explain this perhaps with a little illustration. Magdalene McCola was a nurse up in Scotland, uh, came originally from South Africa, who let a man who she knew vaguely into her home uh, one day, and he took, forced her around to the, uh, to the ATM to get out all her money. It still wasn't enough money for, her, uh, for, for him, and so this man uh, locked her up in the boot of her own car and left her there to die. She was there, bound, gagged, in the boot of her own car for ten days. Finally, uh, her 
muffled cries and a kicking of the, of, the, of the side of the car were heard and she was released. Her abductor was sentenced to eight years behind bars. Now Magdalene said that she was quite happy with the sentence, eight years, a minute of eight years in jail. But then she added, I don't have hatred or anger. In our daily prayer, we always say, forgive those who trespass against us. So we should prove that we can practice it. So she's saying, on the one hand, the state was right to punish the criminal. But also she's saying that she was right to forgive him. The one you see is based on civil ethics and agrees with what scripture says. And the other is based on personal ethics and agrees with what scripture says. Civil ethics, if I can put it like this, is based on justice tempered by love. Personal ethics, my own treatment of, other, of people who wrong me, is based on love tempered by justice. And the civil authorities then, I don't take revenge on those who harm me. I leave it to the civil authorities acting on behalf of God and under his authority. And if we still don't like that idea, think about the alternative to the civil authorities punishing evil. The alternative is mob rule and the law of the jungle. I say the civil authorities in their law enforcement are deeply imperfect. Better, much better than an anarchic dealing with uh, wrongdoing and harm. So they act on God's behalf to punish wrongdoers, verse 4. Also in uh, verse 4, in fact, Paul has said this first of all in verse 4. The civil authorities act on God's behalf to do us good. And we're sitting here thinking, (laughs) what what good did the government ever do do uh, for us? Well, let me list a few things. The state ensures health and safety at work. I'll pause there. When was the last time that you or I said, hmm, health and safety at work, all those rules and regulations, all of those warning signs, all of those risk assessments, political correctness gone mad. Come on, be honest. Haven't we all done that? Health, Health and safety at work? Before we think again of complaining and moaning about health and safety at work, ponder the following fact. The Health and Safety at Work Act came into force in 1974. In that year, about 650 people died from their injury. Uh, 650 employees died from their injuries at work. Compared last year to under a hundred. And that's just one headline statistic. It could be matched by many others, less dramatic, but equally impressive. The state ensures health and safety at work, and actually does it quite effectively. What else does the state do? It safeguards children and vulnerable adults. It ensures that the sick and injured receive treatment. It promotes health. It guarantees liberty, including religious liberty. 
It provides education and training. It ensures that food is fit to eat, water is clean, sewage is disposed of safely, and so on, and so on, and so on. The state provides a stable environment where children can be raised, friendships can be nurtured, employment can be sought and pursued, leisure interests can be, can be enjoyed, and scientific research can be, can, can, be, can, can be conducted, and where arts, music, and literature can flourish. And, best of all, the state provides an environment where each of us can sit in the comfort of our own home and enjoy a nice cup of tea and a chat. Think about what stability is needed in society for us to have that joy and privilege of sitting at home, feeling reasonably safe, having a nice cup of tea, and a chat with our friends, neighbours or family. The state does all of that imperfectly, but it does all of that and much more. And of course, all of that costs money. Therefore, pay your taxes willingly and fill out your tax forms honestly. That's all I'm going to say about taxes, you'll be pleased to know. That's something about the purpose of the ruling authorities. Negatively, to punish wrongdoers. Positively, to do us good, both on behalf of the God to whom they have to do whether they realise it or not. But now, finally, their limits. Excuse me. Now, finally, the limits of these ruling authorities. We've spoken briefly about the situation in Rome into which Paul was writing. That situation would get even worse. Already, I mean, do you know who the emperor, emperor was in, uh, of the Roman Empire at the time that Paul wrote? Nero, that's right. Uh, Nero had, uh, at this stage of writing, not reached the, um, the, the rock bottom of his uh, <coughs> excuse me, malevolence. He had reached that later. But Paul, right at the end of his life, years later, would still be urging, in his letter to, Tim- to Titus, for example, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. And to Timothy, he would urge them to do what we have done this evening, to pray for kings and rulers and so on. So he was writing into a a very imperfect situation and one that would become yet more imperfect. And yet he's saying, be subject to these rulers. So does this passage command unquestioning obedience to the state? Let me illustrate that with an example that, well, actually a number of of Christian writers give, I think, beginning with uh, John Stott, because this man was a friend of John Stott's. His name is Michael Cassidy, and he was the founder of African Enterprise. On the 8th of October, 1985, Michael Cassidy was granted an interview with President P.W. Berta in Pretoria. It was the time of the National Initiative for Reconciliation, and Michael had hoped for signs of repentance and for the assurance that apartheid would be dismantled. He was to be bitterly disappointed. Uh, Michael Cassidy says, I was immediately aware on entry to the room that this was not to be the sort of encounter for which I had prayed. 
The president began the meeting by standing up to read me this part of Romans 13, as though that settled the matter. Obey the state, whatever the state tells you to do. The president evidently imagined this passage, passage was enough to justify unequivocal support of the nationalists' government's apartheid policy. So does it? And the answer, of course, is no, it doesn't support unlimited obedience to the state. Let me try and demonstrate that to you. The limit, there are limits to state authority. Firstly, we know that because this is suggested by the fact that the state's authority is delegated rather than absolute. We've seen that already. In other words, there is a higher throne than any throne that can be found on this, in this world. Secondly, the limit to the state's authority is implied by the language that Paul uses. Paul does not use the language of obedience, but the language of submission. Paul is not talking about following orders blindly, because somebody authority says so, but he's talking rather about recognising the place that God has given to government in the ordering of our world. And thirdly, the limits to the state's authority is confirmed by the wider biblical context. Go back to Exodus in chapter 1. Do you remember the story about the Hebrew midwives? They defied Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to the midwives, kill every baby boy that's born. They defied that order because they feared, the passage says, they feared God, the high authority, more than they feared Pharaoh with all his vaunted power and authority. Think of Daniel as I've said before, deeply entrenched in a foreign culture, a minister of the state himself. But when he's forbidden by the state, forbidden by King Darius, to pray to his God, he defies that and then gets thrown into the lion's den for his pains. Or coming to the New Testament, Peter and the apostles are forbidden by the uh, Jewish uh, ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to preach the gospel of Jesus. And their priceless reply was, we're not going to do what you tell us, because we must obey God rather than men. We are therefore right to obey the ruling authorities right up to the point where to obey what the state requires in order to obey what the state requires, we would have to disobey what God requires. And there is an honourable, if patchy, history right down the years of Christians defying the state in order to do the known will of God, not least in some Christians defying the Nazi regime in, the world, in World War II and protecting their Jewish brothers and sisters. I like to say this evening, especially to younger people, that Christianity is rapidly losing its privileged position in our country. Some of us have been around long enough to see just how, how rapidly it's changed in the last few decades. Public expressions of Christian faith are increasingly likely to get you into hot water. To share, however gently, your Christian faith with a colleague at work 
may end up with you being regarded as bullying, guilty of bullying and harassment. To affirm the Bible's teaching on gender differences and marriage can easily get you labelled as sexist, sexist or worse. To simply stand your ground when someone in authority asks you to be, to be dishonest may, life, may, may make life very difficult for you. But one thing is sure, if you and I have a proven track record of saying yes to Caesar's legitimate demands, then we'll be in a stronger position to say no to his illegitimate demands. Let me conclude. No, this teaching of Paul is not a joke. Being loyal subjects and paying our taxes is part of our service to God. We do all of this because all human authority is derived from God. We follow these human authorities willingly and respectfully, but not blindly or uncritically. And if we follow the teaching of Paul as the inspired apostle of God here, we will be found faithful to the words of our master, who himself is king of kings and lord of lords, who said, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, brings your word to bear. So may we find in this teaching instruction, guidance, encouragement, yes, and perhaps even excitement and inspiration to live our lives as faithful citizens, but also knowing that we have a higher power, a higher throne, and that gives us strength and courage, even in the most difficult days. Amen.